Hello, everyone, and welcome. It's lovely to be here. Uh, my name is Ranka Primorats, and I teach um, at the Department of English, University of Southampton. And it's a real privilege for me. Can you hear me? Uh, it's a real, no? Yeah? Right, I am Ranka Primorats, and I teach at the Department of English at the University of Southampton. That better? Yeah, and it's lovely to be here with you, and welcome. Um, this panel is to do with displacement, okay, crossing boundaries and uh, movement and the notion of diaspora. And we have, uh, I have here with me three transnational African writers who are going to be um, talking to us about it and hopefully engaging you in a discussion about it. Um, I particularly like being here today because I myself am a displaced person. I left former Yugoslavia many, many years ago, and then the country collapsed behind me when I was in Southern Africa. So I have a personal stake in this conversation too. Um, with me here um, today is Brian Chikwava, to my right. He was born in Zimbabwe in 1971, and he has been based in the UK since, since 2002. He is amazingly a construction engineer by training. Um, and legend has it that in the early 2000s, he was bored out of his skull in Harare being a construction engineer, and he wrote a short story, which he photocopied and circulated around arty, trendy cafes in town. And the story was called Seventh Street Alchemy. And a publisher caught sight of it, put it in an anthology, and it ended up winning the Kane Prize for African Writing in 2004. Um, Brian then left us all waiting until 2009 when his first novel came out. The novel's title is Harare North. That means, what does it mean? Does it mean London or the UK? London. That means London in uh, Zimbabwean street slang. And uh, it was unanimously critically applauded. I haven't read any reviews of it that, uh, that didn't like it. Um, Brian tells me that the novel is now um, being translated into French, and that the BBC are thinking about making a television movie out of it. So I can't wait for that to happen. And he is currently working on a second novel. Um, sitting next to Brian is Olumida Popola, she is, was born in 1975, and she's a Nigerian-German author and performer uh, who has a degree in Ayurvedic medicine. She's lived in Nigeria, Germany, South Africa, India, and the Netherlands, and here. And her, her poetry has been published in books and, and periodicals in an equally large um, range of, of countries. Germany, Slovenia, South Africa, Sri Lanka, um, America, Nigeria, and the UK. And on her website, you can see wonderful recordings of Olomide performing her poetry live, sometimes uh, in tandem with musicians and other artists. Um, in 2004, uh, Olomide was awarded the May Aim Award for her poetry is the first black international literary award in Germany. And her first book-length publication is just out, literally six months ago or so, in 2010. It's a novella called This Is Not About Sadness. And uh, uh, the last of our panelists, Abdurazak Gurna, 
It's born in Zanzibar in 1948. He will not be need, to, need to be introduced to many of you. Um, he now works as a professor, professor in the Department of Literature at the University of Kent. And it's all really I can do by way of a short introduction to read the titles of his seven, seven novels here and to maybe name some of the languages in which, into which he has just told me his novels have been translated. So it's Memory of Departure, 1987. Pilgrim's Way, 1988, Dotty, 1990, Paradise, 1994, it was shortlisted for the Booker and Whitbread Prizes, Admiring Silence, 1996, By the Sea, 2001, was long listed for Booker and Los Angeles Times Box Awards, and it won the RFI, RFI Tamois Dumont Prize. Um, Desertion, 2005, which was shortlisted for the Commonwealth Prize. And the last gift is about to, it's not been published yet, but it's about to come out um, later this year. Um, the arrangement today is that they, we will, we have given uh, our authors 15 minutes each to fill. Okay, we've told them to fill this time in any way they want. They can talk to us or read from their work. And we'll see what they do and then talk to, about, talk to them about it. What they will say will be linked to the, um, to the theme of this panel, and we have agreed that they'll do it in the order in which they're sitting. So Brian will start, then Olomide, and then Abdurazak. Okay, so Brian. Okay. Uh, yeah, can everyone hear me? Yeah, all right. Um, I believe, well, maybe later on we will have a, more of a conversation, but uh, maybe uh, to well get into that, what I'll do is uh, read from, from uh, Harare North, and then later on we can, well, have a discussion or something like that. Um, I, uh, well, I must admit, uh, uh, since uh, the novel came out, I haven't, uh, well, read much uh, beyond the first two, two chapters, uh, mostly because uh, I think I'm still terrified of really finding out some of the kind of uh, literary abominations there. Um, and so a lot of times I've always... Uh, try to find an excuse to read right from the beginning of the book, which is quite easy. And uh, on this occasion, I think it seems really easy, because uh, I suppose it's uh, quite appropriate to really uh, start with uh, Arrival, uh, because uh, that is uh, the opening of the book, uh, where the narrator of it uh, is uh, arriving in the UK into diaspora, so to speak. So I'll start uh, from, from the beginning of the book and uh, read until, until you're bored. <laughs> okay, thank you. No one bothered to give me proper tips before I come to England. So on arriving at Gatwick Airport, I disappoint them immigration people because when I step forward to hand my passport to gum-chewing men sitting behind desk, I mouth the magic word, asylum, and flush to the green of friendly African native. 
they detain me. Whatever their reasons for detaining me, them immigration people let me go after eight days. I don't grudge them because they is only doing their graft. But my relatives, they show worryful attitude. I have to wait another two days for my cousin's wife to come and fetch me. The story that I tell the immigration people is tighter than thieves' honors. Me, I tell them I've been harassed by them boys in dark glasses because I was youth member of the opposition party. This is not trying to shame our government in any way, but if you don't spin them smooth jazz numbers, then the immigration people is never going to give you a chance to even sniff a step into Queensland. That is their style I have here. That it takes so long for my cousin and his wife to do anything about me is not a good sign. But me, I'm just happy to get out when the time comes. I'm expecting my cousin Paul to come to pick me up from detention center, but his wife, Sakai, come instead. I say goodbye to them officers at the reception as I pick my suitcase. Sakai stands some few meters from me. She begs straight like that of soldier on parade, and she wears narrower than that of was. Dressed neat, hands in she coat's pocket, she keeps some distance that is good enough to suggest to them detention people that she really have nothing to do with me, but have been forced into situation. She not even bothered to shake my hand and only greet me from safe distance and look at my suitcase in funny way. It is one of them old-style cardboard suitcases that mother have used before I was born, and I've carried roosters in the past, but it's my suitcase. Me, I don't mind Sakai too much. I was not expected to be welcomed with open arms. Harare Township is full of them stories about the misfortunes that people meet. They carry bags full of things and hairs that is full of wonders of new life, hustle some passage to Harare North, turn up without notice at some relative's door, only to have their dreams thrown back into their faces. But then again, me, I don't think I'm like them people. Paul and Sakai have been given notice that I'm soon going to be stepping into their house in east of London. Sakai lead the way out. We have our first difficult moment when we get to the train station and she expects me to buy my own ticket. That's when it sinks inside my head that she'll turn into loves African, Sakai. Me, I am guest, and there she is expecting me to buy my own ticket on the first day. And it's not that me, I don't want to buy myself a ticket. I buy the ticket if I had the money. I beg she and try to explain. Me, I only want, have one million Zimbabwe dollars in my bag, which even if I exchange will come to something like four pounds. The ticket come to six pounds. Sakai no longer remember who she is or where she come from. I can tell. I'm she husband's cousin, have paid for my air ticket, but she still expect me to dip into my pocket for train ticket. 
I have no money, I say, after a funny moment when she have held my gaze and we stand silent investigating each each face. Seka is not in mocking way, rosy eyes, and look at me. In the end, she buy the ticket. Before the end of my first day, I already know that Sekai don't want me to stay with them. But me, I really don't want to stay in Harare North too long. I don't want to have vexed face all the time because of Sekai. I just want to get myself good graft very quick, work like animal and save heap of money and then bang. Me, I'm on my way back home. Enough pounds sterling to equal 5,000 US dollars is all I have to make. Then me, I'm free man again. I know things is going to get funny if Sekai and Paul start to think that I'm real big lord on them. But that's how all people from home behave when they're in Harare North. Sometimes you talk to them on the phone asking if they don't mind if you come and live with them. And they don't say no. Because they don't want you to, they don't want you to think that they're selfish. They always say, okay, just get visa and come. When they know that the visa is where everyone hit the wall. Because the British High Commission don't just give visa to any native who think he can flag down jet plane, jump on it and fly off to Harare North. Especially when they notice that people get them visitors' visas and then on landing, they do this style of claim asylum. So people is now getting that old consulate treatment. The person behind the counter window give you the severe look and ask you to bring more of this and that and throw back your papers. And before you even gather them, you have called up the next person. That frighten you and make you feel cheap. You don't want to go back there again. But it suits all Zimbabweans in Harare North, even Sakai and Paul. They say that, yes, I can come and live with them, but me, now I know they say that because they was expecting the British High Commission to do the dirty work for them. I have bring Paul and Sakai a small bag of groundnuts from Zimbabwe. Groundnuts that my aunt bring from her rural home. Sakai gives the small bag one look and bin it right in front of me. She said I should never have been allowed to bring them nuts into the country because maybe they carry disease. Then she go out and buy us McDonald's supper. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, we'll go straight to Olomida next. Hello. Is that working? Is it on? Yeah. Okay, I've prepared a few thoughts, um, kind of loosely on the topic, so I'm just going to do that first and then I'll read a little bit as well. And I wanted to start by picking up the notion of exile, because that was in the description for this panel. And it stood out for me because this week I read an interview with um, Afro-Caribbean Canadian writer M. Nobesi Philip. In the interview, she's asked whether she considers herself to be a writer in exile. She affirms and elaborates, and I quote there, it's exile from a number of things on many layers, your original language, your mother tongue, your culture, your spirituality. Those of you who are familiar with her work know, will know that the idea of mother tongue and English as a foreign language, as a tool of power, as an anguish, is strong. In the interview, the following question is about whether female writers 
Well, like some other female writers from writing from exile, she feels that she needed to get away from a place of origin to be able to fully express herself or fully find her voice. Um, she says no, because before she left, she hadn't yet um, been fully conscious of being a writer. They then move on to talk about Philip's essay, This Place, The Space Between, which de deals with the threat of rape as the primary way in which women's space is kept contained and the notion that displacement comes with that. So the body of the African woman's body as the physical land that is harvest harvested at times violently and that because of that threat, the threat of a woman's body in open space, her experiences of a native Trinidad is very different from that of male writers. And I thought this was a very important um, point, being that we are a mixed panel, and that there's a lot of writing, I think, for people coming from certain areas that is about the land and exploring the land and exploring the landscape or the cityscape, and that for a female writer, this can be a completely different experience. So um, also on some other level, my novel, of course, deals with rape um, as the character table comes to London to kind of hear from that experience. In London, she befriends who is to become her witness, the Jamaican pensioner Norma Thompson. The act of witnessing for the two women is that of a new routing of a making space available, a space and a place, namely a garden, a kitchen, a living room in North London, etc. And in that place or new imagined play, um, space, expression can take place. Expression that needs to be freed at first from confinement, in the confinement um, in relation to the woman's body. What I'm trying to argue is, of course, not at all that Tebu's place of origin is more violent than that of her arrival, but that the journey, the physical leaving behind of her trauma, bears the opportunity for transformation. The two women find themselves in foreign land. They couldn't be different in their views and approaches to life, thus they are foreign to each other. But through the need and through their recognition, both imagine a new place with, with each other and thus bring it into existence. This encounter exists in a sort of in-between place, a space that is exclusive to them. It's something very particular, something that takes place between two women who find themselves in voluntary exile. The story had been coming to me for quite a while. I started in 2004 and then I finally finished it last year. And I'm only mentioning this that because I arrived in the UK in 2002, in the latter half of that year. One of the most striking differences coming here from Berlin was, of course, the large diasporic communities and also the expression of cultures. I experienced a more variant form of overlapping of culture, and please excuse the feeble choice of word here. Um, I was recently asked about Germans' reoccurring need for light culture and lead culture. And when I left in 2002, that was still very prevalent as it is now resurfacing again. So my arrival, and Brian just read about arrival, my arrival he here was met with a fascination or an interest in these interstitial interactions between people and diasporic communities or in large urban centers like London is. Being of Nigerian-German descent and having lived not only in those countries but in the Netherlands and in other countries, I'd known for quite a while that for myself it was easier to be Nigerian-German outside of either of my home countries, not just because I was um, a product of these two cultural experiences, but I was also accustomed to be on journeys between the countries. The journey in itself became the most complete or satisfying place of being 
if you can call um, the space in the air that the plane travels through a place. So coming back to my initial reference of the female writer who at times might be able to find a voice better outside of a place of origin, large urban centers like London do not only bear opportunity because in my case, my, um, I was, it was a sort of completeness in absence, but from these precise interstitial places where multiple pla um, voices can arise from. What fascinated me with Tibble and Mrs. Thompson, the main characters of my book, was the very simple question of what happens at the front yard? What happens at the fence? What do we make of it when we stand there with all, the, all that we have and with the space that we come from that is so irrevocably entrenched in us? In a way, this is not about sadness, it has a sort of happy ending. Those of you who might have read it might argue that, or might challenge that, but in terms of what is possible within the situation, um, I think it is a happy ending. Tibble dies later in London, not because she doesn't deserve to live on, but because, quite frankly, her time is up. But before she dies, the women in the novella, they form deep bonds, rooting themselves not only in the place, which is North London, but also in each other's psyche. They thus become witnesses to each other, existing beyond both their current and place of origin, the space of their single self-imagination, outside of confinement, here um, the confinement of the woman's body, whether self or externally imposed, and in a place of new expression. This happens because of the interstitial notion, the tension between longing and belonging. So I just wanted to throw these out for discussion, and just, I just read a little bit from the beginning of the book. Experiences come in all manners. They spread and engage, tug and pull, question and challenge, much longer than you desire. My name is Tebo, Tebojo. I arrived yesterday. It is spring, they say, but I wasn't prepared for this. What a strange city. It looks nice outside with the sun shining, the clouds sitting fat and well-fed underneath the blue of the sky. But when we stepped out of the cab, it was not as I expected it. Ish, the wind is too cold. It hits from the west, drops sharply south and spread into all directions. Everything shivers. It is cold, but I'm glad I'm here. I'm here to forget what happened on the corner of Coma and Porch. That stretch of red earth before the tar begins, where the fine dust is whisked up by speeding cars, where the soil is hard but layered with the finest, the finest of dust. Three months and 15 days ago, I stood on that corner. Zanella and Perdita were having one of their usual arguments, so I'd left the party. Not to disappear, not to smoke, I don't, not even Dacha. I just wanted to catch some air and think about what to do and if this was going to be one of those nights and I had to make the long way to number 36 by myself. Although it was going to be a Sunday, I had work to do. Finishing the set at the Windy Brow where I was doing my internship in stage design. It was my final month and it had gone well, very well, mainly because I know how to stay out of trouble. I stood on that dusty corner only for a few minutes. When your life changes, you cannot foresee the impact. But when it does, the things that happen are unstoppable. Like the dust, they get carried away with the current. 
Like the wind, they bury themselves deep in your bones, and slowly, from the insides out, you start spilling away, your old self stripping off all that was truth, one layer at a time, never to be innocent again. My name is Tebo, Teboho. I arrived yesterday. Well, she came one day, small and fragile. Pretty little thing, but you think she thinks she can carry bricks, or? I never want to talk to her. Me, I just sit in my front room looking out of the window. Me, no need, no young little thing, I tell me how the world must run. Nah. She always got something to say. Asking, always asking. Then her eyes look upon me like say she never gonna see me again. Her big eyes. Like she won't find something on the bottom of the well. Me, well, very well, but no well, no so. She work hard, man. She could have worked hard. Drag all of the old things out of the house, clear the garden all by herself. It was an accident. Everyone says so. Everyone comes with the past. That's where the story lies, naturally. She came in a cab. Motor running, cabelling against the black roof smoking. Lucky running inside to get more money for the fare. His step, heavy from the weight of his belly, absorbed by the asphalt. Inside the vehicle, the girl. If frailness was a measurement, she would have scored a six out of 10. Even as is what best described how she seemed. Small, slender, and very polite looking. But somehow you thought she'd call you out if need be. Very matter of fact, straight away. Then the dragging of the suitcase, lucky smiling, kept driving off. The girl freezing, looking at the first time at a new environment. The gray house, not Lucky's, but inside his dark ground floor flat, wedged between others, snug and tight. A mid-terrace Victorian house. This is how she arrived on Cobain Street. Abdurazakana. Right, hello everybody. Um, I haven't prepared anything, but <laughs> I come from Zanzibar. So I just want to begin first by thinking about that, what I've just said. What does it mean to say I come from Zanzibar when I've lived for the last 40 years here? But still I say I come from Zanzibar. And still I think like that. What does it mean? Well, partly that's, that is what, what I write about. The way in which there is some place in our imagination which remains always, whatever else happens, where we come from, where we belong, in some way. In some way that we can't contest with, in some way that if somebody were to shake me awake in the middle of the night and say to me, where do you come from? I wouldn't even think. If I thought, I might say, why do you want to know? <laughs> but if I wasn't in a position like that and I simply had to give an answer, that's the answer that I would give. Anyway, so... I often find words like displaced, which Ranka began uh, in her introduction, rather des described herself even, as well as us. I often find words like displaced, or exile, or dislocated, 
um, uncomfortable words, not because they're not true, but because they don't really describe a much more complex and subtle condition. And certainly, uh, they carry uh, an idea of violent rupture and disruption, which is not always uh, a description. Perhaps what they do is they describe what it feels like to be so far away from where you come from, rather than, um, rather than the, the initial separation from that place is that violent separation. In some cases, of course, it is. I also hesitate over words like exile. I think the noble words, and I'm not quite sure if, say, what I did to be here was noble or was driven by noble motives. It was driven by fear to some extent, by a desire for fulfillment. There was no principle in it. I wasn't moving myself from one place to be in another place where I could then achieve things. I was just running away from something intolerable. So in what I've been writing about over the years, when you think back, it suddenly seems quite a lot of years, uh, but it doesn't feel like that when you're doing it, is to, to capture something, I suppose, of, of all of these nuances and subtleties of, of being so horribly alienated and estranged from this place where you come from. <clears throat> because I'm not trying to suggest that it isn't. On the whole, uh, a painful, even at times tragic, experience or condition. I'm not talking about poverty. I'm not talking about uh, inequalities. I'm not talking about all the other possibilities of what one would encounter or might encounter, but which fortunately I'm not at the moment. But nonetheless, it still remains an alienating and painful experience for various reasons, which is, if I knew, if I could say them to you in a few sentences, I wouldn't bother writing them. But uh, that's, that's part of what I reflect on and, and try to describe or to engage with, that sense of living in one place uh, while you're also imaginatively as you are engaged by another place. There's also another dimension to, to where I come from, which is, which is relevant to this notion of, I suppose, migration or indeed dislocation or displacement or all of these words. As I said, I come from Zanzibar, and if you look at a map, you'll find that Zanzibar is uh, you may know, but can't swear to it, uh, that Zanzibar is on the western edge of the Indian Ocean. And it's a more interesting way at times, anyway, to think about it than to think of it as in East Africa. It's not that it isn't, but it isn't the only way, the only place where it is. It's also on the western edge of the Indian Ocean. And therefore, its world is the Indian Ocean world much more so, to some extent, than, say, Africa. Which is not to say, once again, that I'm saying it isn't part of Africa, but its world, the world that it's joined up to, the world from which it received over the years its connections, over the centuries indeed, or indeed its people too, that that's a more real connection than perhaps some of the newer connections over the last hundred years or so 
with the interior of Africa. So not ruling one out in favor of the other, but that connection with the Indian Ocean, being part of the Indian Ocean, is, it seems to me, uh, a more profound, a more ancient connection. And that is all to do with moving. That is all to do with people who travel and trade and speak different languages and live in different places and marry people from different parts of that Indian Ocean. So migration is not new. Of course it's not new all over the world. I'm not suggesting that. The whole world's been moving all the time. But I mean for Indian Ocean people, migration is not new. And moving from one place to another, even living in another place to which you're a stranger, is not something new. Well, colonialism had something to do with changing that, of course, with drawing different borders, with making movement between this place and that place difficult, etc. We won't go. We won't go into that right now. Uh, but it did play a part in transforming uh, those movements, that permeability, as it were, between cultures. <clears throat> so that too is what I write about. That too is a way of retelling the story of what kind of place I come from. That it isn't simply a place uh, where there's a, a kind of an edge of the East African coast, as it were, or the Western Indian Ocean coast, if you like, literal, if you like. Uh, it isn't just about people there kind of marooned. They're people who are part of a bigger world, which is part of South Arabia, of India, and elsewhere. Okay, so the, the two things, as I said, that I've mentioned, although I could, I could perhaps go on and name others, uh, that's, what does it mean then to be so far away from a world like that, to be in another world where you are an alien, whereas in another world, which is also mixed in that way, it is possible uh, to be part of it without that sense. Well, maybe distance is part of it, but of course also there is the colonial relationship that's also part of it, Maybe religion's part of it, who, who knows, who cares? One could go on elaborating on what these differences are. So the third thing I'm interested in then in writing about is that last bit. What does it mean to live here? What does it mean to live here if you also have these other matters in your mind? So that's my agenda. Both to talk about that place in ways that retrieve something of its true nature and its true character to talk about the condition, if you like, of being somebody who is the modern, like so many of us, looking around the room, uh, people who come from somewhere else and live away from that other place that's in their minds. And I suppose this now, it means I live here. So to, in a sense, come to terms with this notion of home too. So um, my new book, which is called The Last Gift, uh, takes this same old stuff that I've been writing about uh, a little bit further in that the central figure there is somebody who's quite old and who's now thinking back about the time he's lived here and his family and his children and so on. So those kinds of issues. So I was actually, strangely enough, these two here have read about arriving. I was going to read about arriving as well. But I think I'll give you a slightly different uh, reading now. Just for a change. 
I'm reading from Desertion. <coughs> and just to give you a, a bit of context, I guess. To, uh, Desertion opens with the appearance of uh, an Englishman who has obviously been, either been lost or has lost his way or has been abandoned. In any case, he appears at a small town uh, and collapses. And the person who finds him is a man called Hassan Ali, who's a shopkeeper. Hassan Ali takes him to his house uh, because just for he has to. He's a human being who's wounded. So he takes him to his house uh, to kind of care for him. Hassan Ali has a sister called Rahana. And these reflections are Rahana's reflections. Her first thought was that it was him, her husband, that he had struggled back and Hassan Ali had found him and brought him home. Not because there was any resemblance or anything like that. The thought came too quickly for that. Hassan Ali had brought an exhausted traveler home and her first thought was that it was him. She had felt terror and anger and the beginnings of elation all in an instant. Now that she thought of that moment, she remembered that she also thought of him, how he looked, his smile, the feel of the hair on his body, all in a rush. Then she saw that it wasn't him and drew back in relief and disgust. The disgust was with herself for being unable to feel only rage and humiliation at the thought of him, for being unable to stifle her body's desire for him, for the relief of having him back. Then she saw Hassan Ali standing in front of her at a loss as always at what he had done, at what he had brought home, and she could not suppress her irritation with him. It was not his fault, but it also was. He had brought him home too, Azad. He told Hassan Ali that he came from the same town as their father, that he knew the family. That was what Hassan Ali reported to her when he came in after shutting the shop that evening. He said he may even have heard of their father while still in India, as a young man who went away to the black coast and never returned. Many others went like that, but most came back in the end to look for a wife. His name was Azad. He had come to Mombasa in the last Muslim on a ship from Calicut. Their captain made good profits on the merchandise he brought with him mostly supplies ordered and paid for in India. But he was new to the Muslim trade and was cautious on his first trip. He also brought some cloth and jaggery and trinkets, which he sold to local merchants who intended to distribute them in the interior. But he had trouble finding enough to take back on the return trip. He did not have the slack in the margin of his profits to take any risks. Other ship's captains had already made advance arrangements with suppliers and had the reputations and connections to protect these arrangements. So the captain asked Azad to stay behind and act as his agent until his return the following year to arrange for goods and merchandise to be ready for him when he came back. Azad was in the town to agree a purchase of such and such a tonnage of Simsim because as everyone knew this was one of the best areas for Simsim. The rubber for the new European plantations was, of course, not available for purchase by people like them. They went straight into the government ships and were sent to, to Laya for their own use. But the Simsim was there, and some tobacco, and leather, 
and aromatic gum, all good merchandise. While he was in town, he heard about their father. To be honest, he had already heard while he was in Mombasa, because, of course, he used to live there. And some of the Gujarati merchants he dealt with there mentioned him, so he knew about their father, even before he came to the town. And when someone here mentioned Hassan Ali, he thought he would come and pay his respects. Hassan Ali reported all this with an excitement which surprised Rehana. She didn't think India mattered that much to Hassan Ali, or at least she was surprised that it did. Their father, whose name was Zakaria, had always said that he was a Muslim living among Muslims, and that was enough for him. Where he was born or came from was neither here nor there. They all lived in the house of God, Darul Islam, which stretched across mountains and forests and deserts and oceans, and where all were the same in submission to God. He had a gift for languages, their father, and spoke Swahili, Arabic, and Gujarati fluently. His Swahili was quite perfect. It was not only that he could make himself understood in this language, but that he felt it and made his, his way in it with an intimacy and assurance that was like an instinct, like walking, a skill so profoundly learned that it seemed natural. From his earliest days in Mombasa, when he worked in the warehouses in the port, he made friends with other young men in the towns and ran about with them as if he knew no else. People used to say that if you were to listen to him speak with your eyes shut, you would not take him for anything other than a born and bred Mbita, a man of Mombasa. He even knew and recited the defiant poems of Mombasa against the threat of the sultans of Zanzibar, who seemed to be forever wanting to take charge of even the smallest town and hamlet everywhere along the coast. Everyone loved that about him, that he had so fluently and joyfully embraced the people he lived among, that he swaggered with the other young people, went to weddings and funerals with them, could be sent at errands by his elders and accept, accepted rebuke from the usual busybodies as if he was one of their own. Time's up. Thank you very much to all of you. Um, before I open, before I ask you to invite you to ask questions, just a, a small reflection. Um, I was thinking while we were listening to these readings about, well, about stories and stories by people who have changed places and the extent to which you can generalize about them. We do this a lot in Department of English, okay? Any, any average Department of English now, there, will, there might be a course on migrant writing, and they are nice courses. It's very often nice writing. But can you, can you, can, is it, I mean, we all come from somewhere else, okay? You've got four people in front of you who are from somewhere, and if they wake up, if they're woken up at midnight, they might or might not name a place that comes automatically to their minds. Um, we have just heard three people uh, read from the work, and, and some have reflected on it. What can be said to unite them? Uh, how careful do we need to be when we try to do that? And what might be there that separates them? I think possibly one generalization can cautiously be made. Um, migration or displacement or being diaspora, whatever you, word you, you might, might suit you, necessitates stories. It almost obliges you to narrate yourself, okay? There might be an immigration official to say, you know, why are you here? 
or you might want a job. You want something from, from the new place. But what you want from the new place almost inevitably has to do with the old place. There's unfinished business. There is something, as Abrazak said, there's something to recapture. As Olomide says, everyone comes with a past, and that's where the story lies, naturally. So you're trying to recapture the story while doing some new business, and all the time, neither the story nor you stays the same. Um, please ask questions uh, of these people about their stories. Thank you. Is this on? Yeah. Um, thank you for uh, all of your interventions. They're really, really interesting. Um, my name is Ivor Wells, and I, I, I'm originally I'm originally from New Zealand, um, which is a diaspora that uh, hasn't been written about very much um, here in in London. But there's 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 aspects of of, of your stories that I can I can certainly um, identify with. I've also lived in, in Germany as well, so I, I have two very just quick questions um, for the panel. Firstly, um, to Olamide, I'm interested in your reflections, um, if you have any, on the experience of being um, of African origin in Germany as opposed to in the UK, um, the difference in colonial history, the difference in culture, and, and, and what any re do you have any, any, any reflections on um, the differences between the diaspora experience in Germany and the diaspora experience in, in the UK. Um, and secondly, just a, another th theme that perhaps might be um, common to uh, all three of you is, is any reflections on the reliability of memory when we're talking about our stories and how uh, it's fascinating uh, what you were saying, Ranka, about diaspora necessitating the need to define through stories. Um, I can certainly I identify with that, but what comes with that is often the, the, the unreliability of memory and how, um, how difficult it sometimes can be to get to the truth of, of what actually did happen. I'm thinking particularly of writers like Kutsia who have really challenged the notion of the reliability of not only memory but also the reliability of a, narrate, uh, of a narrator in telling a story um, of, of what has gone on uh, before. So those are my two, two questions to, to the panel. I have to think a little bit about it, not because it's not obvious, but a little, <laughs> what do I want to say about it? I think there's a huge difference for, for various reasons. The first one is that Germany doesn't do very well with reflecting on its colonial past. I think there's a sort of, um, this is something that is not obvious, yeah, or not obviously discussed, so that's a huge difference. The other thing is that Germany doesn't do very well with being multicultural. Actually, if you look at the uh, legal side, even things like racism didn't come into place. Germany didn't sign a particular EU-wide, um, I'm not sure what the legal term is, contract that all the U U EU member states signed until, I think, 2006, and which meant that racism did not exist legally. It did not exist because Germany is not multicultural. It is always um, threats against foreigners. When you are a foreigner and you're not um, an accepted member of this society, then you're expected to leave. Yeah, This is just a temporary... Um, this is just a temporary thing. So I think 
these are things that in the UK happened at a different time and because a lot more people came to the UK in the 60s and before, um, the way that diasporic communities are lived out are very different. Yeah, they're not so much on the fringes and I think what I was just in my reflection trying to say is when I came here I saw people mm, living out their own cultural expressions and I'm uncomfortable with all these terms and I just jotted these things down yesterday so I'd have to think about this more. I didn't see that in Germany. Other than in Berlin where you have a large Turkish community, people supposed to integrate which means assimilate and they do. Whatever else they're doing is in their home, is hidden away. Yeah, I'm saying this as, in a, as a stereotypical answer. Of course, this is not the law, but I think um, those are the main points for me, if I quickly throw that out. Is that helpful, Dom? Same thing about memory? Why you write it? That's for, that's for I everyone. I think uh, memory is not at all reliable. And I'm not sure if uh, it needs to be because there's certain ever telling stories, it is also about emotional memory. It is about um, emotional residue. So that might completely be truthful in that way. Whether the facts are reliable is another question. I don't know if they need to be, especially in fiction. We're dealing um, not with facts. So I, I think it's an interesting point, the reliability of memory. But I think I, I would split it between, yeah, the emotional residue and the facts. Memory? Oh, um, memory. Uh, I suppose, uh, well, personally, I've uh, come probably to a point where, well, I've accepted in a lot of ways that uh, memory itself is not uh, a reliable thing. And, uh, I suppose it's something that maybe as a writer you just have to work with and be aware of. But uh, also, I think maybe more, probably, probably more important than that is probably like the stories that people tell themselves or tell others in a way. Uh, how they kind of develop, a lot of times I think they are uh, a reflection of uh, in a way, how uh, well they make up uh, the people, the stories that we kind of uh, tell really make who we are in a lot of ways. And in spite of the fact that uh, maybe memory may be, well, not exactly reliable in a way, but I think uh, what is more interesting, maybe perhaps, is the, the drive for keeping uh, uh, telling those stories, which, uh, you know, sometimes they might not be reliable, but uh, these are probably a survival drive there that creates those stories because without that really at the end of the day people are faced with all sorts of um, uh, suppose more challenging existential questions which are probably much, well, much more difficult to kind of uh, grapple with. Uh, well, all of that. Um, <laughs> And maybe also the unreliability of memory is the story itself. Yeah. Or it could be the, the, you know, the feeling. Brian writes about a character who thinks he, his memory is reliable. Mm. His whole story is he says somewhere, I prefer, what to, I prefer what I believe over what I know. My memory is what I believe, and I think it's absolutely true. And that is my story. <laughs> I think so that that no. Um, more questions? Yeah. 
Thank you. I wondered if the panel had comments on the, the theme of second generation. Um, two aspects to that, I suppose, because my mother is from Burma. Um, I wasn't brought up with any kind of Burmese cultural um, you know, theme, really, but I do, I do feel a sense of belonging to that country and have, having visited there once in particular. Um, and also just the, th the theme of in intra-country adoption, uh, where if you, if you adopt somebody from a different uh, uh, country, you're very much encouraged to, to let them know about their heritage and, and visit back to the country because they would have a sense of belonging to that country. And I wondered how that could be if they, you know, they're so young when, when, they're, when they move country. Is there anyone in particular you'd like to answer that? Just generally. generally. Uh, well, that's, uh, that's quite a hard one. But also, I, uh, I think uh, maybe in one way, every person or every human being tries to look for something that completes them and kind of, uh, well, make them whole in, in some way. And uh, that uh, feeling of incompleteness, uh, I suppose, it, it is uh, keener if I think uh, you have an awareness or believe that there is some other place where you originated from. And uh, I don't know, maybe who'd like to get to terms with that and, uh, well, complete yourself in a lot of ways. And uh, I suppose, well, maybe it manifests itself in many different ways in maybe other people are probably not in, those, uh, in that kind of situation, but I don't know, I'm just grasping it in the dark. I think, I think this is for you, Olamida, actually, <laughs> this question. I think it's a difficult question, too, but I was just thinking, as you were speaking, I wrote down belonging, and if you think about the word belonging, and if you take the BE out, it's longing. So maybe it follows on what Brian says, this longing of to attach yourself to some place, and if, if somehow in your history you have, a, let's say, not a straightforward attachment to a place, there's the sort of a longing, and... Um, I, um, I think it's important, yes, absolutely. I think it's important to go find this place, not for everybody, but I think it's important. But I don't know if you will be able, or if one will ever be able to solve this sense of longing, which maybe, as Brian says, is a human condition. Maybe it's not just second generation, or those of us who then didn't, you know, didn't grow up in the country. Because when you were speaking, I was thinking about, you were mentioning alienation, and being now away from your place of origin, being alienated here. And I was thinking that for me it was so different because of course I was an alien in Germany, which was my country, which is my passport. So you have to deal with that and the longing is therefore magnified because I cannot have a place of belonging, not an easy solvable place. So I don't have an answer for you. I'm just, these are just my, my thoughts that I can offer. Um, yeah, it's a very big issue, very difficult question. And also because there's so many complications in it. So it's not just a matter of parents, say, for example, both parents might come from Bangladesh and the child might grow up here. Therefore, that connection with Bangladesh might be possible to sustain. But say, in your example, 
which we won't pursue, but uh, where you have people coming from different places in the first place. You're, you've already got a divided heritage, if you like, and then you live somewhere else altogether, Holland or whatever it might be. Uh, so I think there are degrees of complications within there which make it hard to answer that question. Although I suspect in the end, I suspect in the end that the difficulty of actually reclaiming uh, that place would be uh, probably insurmountable. I don't know. But I mean, I guess all this would have to come out of the particular need of the individual, how much they want that, uh, the degree to which they might want to engage with it, and so on and so forth. I don't know. I have children who are in exactly that situation. And so they will, I imagine, solve these situations <coughs> in whichever ways are agreeable to them. I just want to add one thing, because the thing I mentioned in my earlier reflection, the thing about journeys and the acceptance of being on the journey and coming to London, because I found many people who were on that journey, it almost made it okay. I didn't have to arrive anywhere. It's that journey that you're trying maybe to reclaim something, but in trying to reclaim that something over there, you realize you're just here and it's fine. Yeah, if that makes any sense. Ooh, um, person there. Uh, let's, let, let, a lot of hands went up, so maybe we could take, say, three this time. So there's a lady there, then we can take Claire and lady over here. Can I ask a question directed more as you as writers than as members of various diaspora? Um, do you think the actual physical location of this other space, which are, if your interesting point, I'd love you to develop more about how difficult it might be to reclaim, given you're all now talking about a belief rather than the, the, the physical reality of it. Do you think that that genuine location is part of the, the creative process that makes you makes perhaps exiles particularly good writers? Okay, that's one. Thanks. Um, I'd like to ask a question um, about the idea of conviviality. I'm struck that a theme across all of your um, reflections this afternoon uh, have been questions of exile, questions of alienation, questions of displacement. And yet, reading your work, the notion of conviviality in diaspora uh, amongst people from different places in their everyday lives uh, comes through, perhaps more strongly in some of the uh, novels of um, some panel members than others. So I just wondered if writing about everyday conviviality, is that part of the aim of, of what you try to do as writers? And is that partly perhaps connected to trying to imagine uh, diasporic belonging differently from very dominant public discourses? Okay, third one is that. Um, you mentioned moving to um, to the UK, to Germany, to um, whatever, Holland. Uh, I'm a student in European affairs, and we always talk about European identity and the absence of such European identity. Now, I was wondering, from your perspective, do you feel that there is a kind of coherence or uh, European identity that you feel opposed to or interacting with, or, or do you still feel that national um, identities are much stronger when it comes to interacting with uh, people you know, immigrants or diaspora people. Who wants to start? <coughs> I'll take the location one. Uh, I can see this is this is a kind of a modernist argument too, uh, in that you know when you all the mod all the high modernists were 
away from their places of origin because the <coughs> places of origin, whether it's the United States or Ireland or whatever, um, was a place that kind of oppressed them and didn't allow the imagination to open out and so on. <coughs> so that's a familiar one. The distance gives you that sort of perspective and so on. Possibly. Possibly there are things you would not dare say if you know, you're going to run into some of your neighbors the following day. Uh, not because you're abusive to them, but because of a certain defensiveness about what, what criticism you might offer in a general way uh, to practices that take place. Partly, I suppose, because in, uh, certainly from where I come from, the idea of writing itself is one that hasn't quite, um, you know, the people don't read in the same way as they do in more established reading cultures, if I can put it like that. So. An example of the Satanic Verses would be an example of something like that. So that uh, the idea of a novel that might be making fun of uh, the prophet is intolerable. Uh, whereas it wouldn't be, although it might be, people might not like it, if it were you know, something to do with Christian ideas that's all being made fun of, they might not like it, but it wouldn't be to that extent of dislike, that, that, that distraught anger that it brought out in people. So distance in this particular case, away from uh, or rather towards reading cultures, cultures that actually also value writing, I think gives the process itself a different meaning and, and therefore gives room to the writer to write differently, I think. Um, conviviality. Um, Brian, your, your character does, an, does an interesting take on that living together in the big city. I think, could I just ask you, because you haven't yeah. done this before, and I'm wondering if people might need it, to explain a little bit about your, your novel and your key character. This is quite a strange one. How has he found himself in London, and who is he, just briefly, and then conviviality? Um, well, uh, the narrator of uh, uh, the book is uh, a young man who is uh, a former Green Bomber in Zimbabwe, who are the Green Bombers are this uh, uh, pro-government militia who were quite notorious in Zimbabwe, and is uh, had to well flee Zimbabwe because uh, of various charges that are being uh, levied on him, and he thinks that he can come to London and uh, make a bit of money and then go back and buy off. Uh, all the prosecutors and buy his freedom back again. And uh, regarding the question of conviviality, it's a quite a <laughs> it's, it's a hard one. But also, you see, the process of writing. Well, for me personally, it's so I don't know. It's so mundane, so much that I really. The, the un honest answer will be that uh, really I just write a lot of stuff, or maybe because my agent is hustling me, and <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't have uh, quite, uh, I don't know, it doesn't offer any great insights in a way. But uh, maybe what may be interesting is the reason why I uh, chose to write about this particular subject or this, or, or this particular style which maybe says also a lot about myself at that particular point in time. Uh, but uh, 
I'm afraid I don't think I'm going to be able to offer much on that. Well, maybe you're nervous about that too, isn't yeah. it? How people come together. And also maybe European identity. Let me see. It is, yes, for me it is about how diasporic communities are played out, conviviality. But I am, my starting point is really what happens at the fence? What happens there? And I was saying earlier to, um, we were talking in, in the green room and I was saying, well, I arrived here from Germany, I had a different experience. And where I live in, in London is not a particularly place, but of course loads happen. What happened when the door shuts? shuts? Because all these, and in a way that is affirming your question because there are all these debates in, in the news, you know, in public spaces, and I am interested, my academic brain is interested in that, but in the writing, I'm more interested, yeah, what happens when you bring out the trash? Yeah, and then you're confronted with each other. But that's, in another way, that's what all writers do, because it's about humans. Yeah, unless you're writing not about humans, then write about other things. But it's just, yeah, interaction. But of course, I can't divorce, divorce myself um, from having certain agenda in terms of my, you know, my personal um, convictions. And the thing about identity, hmm. Um, it's difficult for me because my early work was very, very much about identity, having to kind of write ourselves into the German history. Yeah, we didn't exist. Yeah, the, the, and of course we existed, and we existed longer than the Second World War, but there were no references, there was no artwork, etc. So it was so driven by being strong and proud and confident in my identity as a black German woman that now I shy away from these discussions because I want to leave that a little bit behind so I can explore other things that are in my work, you know? So, um, so European identity, I don't know. I'm I am excited because there's a sort of Afropean trend, yeah, to come up with Afropean studies, to collect things and to, and I'm excited because I live in the UK. When I came here, nobody knew that there would be black people in Germany and it's, it's an hour flight away. <laughs> there's lots going on on the continent. This is not the only place exciting stuff happens. So uh, in that way, I'm excited about that. Does that help anyway? Can I, can I offer before I, I, I give you the mic, um, another, another way of, of going into the big city and living together question. Um, I've been thinking about um, plots by these writers and other writers in which characters move places, they come to big cities, and then in the big city, this is, this is a very realist device if you, if you choose to look at it like that. You come to the big city and you meet fate there. You meet someone. There's a meeting and it's the person you most wanted to meet. Or it's the person you were waiting to meet but you didn't know it, it would be them. A fateful meeting happens that resolves something that goes all the way back to home, whatever that may be. So, you know, Brass Green Bomber goes to, to Harare North, it's the whole of the city of London. And who does he meet there? Other people who are Robert Mugabe's supporters. Mm -hmm. You know, what he was running away from was there. Olumide's um, novella, it's a woman running away from trauma in South Africa. And she meets another woman who's been traumatized. And, 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 two, and, the, and the two traumas amount to healing, okay? So the, the novella is not about sadness. Um, again, I'm thinking in particular of um, by the sea, you know, people, two people meeting who, who think that, who have a complicated way of relating to one another, uh, 
this is all linked with naming, actually, who, who think they know one another, who think they know about one another, who know that one another's name. And they are the people who had to meet, but then the manner in which they meet unsettles everything. Um, can you, does it, can I wait you to comment on that? Fate and form well, and story. Well, uh, sure, comment on that, but everywhere I go, and I travel around a little bit now, um, I meet a Zanzibari. There's, there's, <laughs> one, there's one sitting there. Uh, but wherever I go, it seems, you run into them. The last place I was in, I was in Chicago. Uh, this is the last place I've been before this, I mean, to do something like this, a couple of months ago. Uh, and I'm looking at the audience, or others you do, you know. I think, I know him. <laughs> uh, and indeed, when I get back, there is an email to say, I was there in the audience, was really... So there is, there is a kind of truth as well in that. Are that you drawn to them? Are you drawn away from them? Or is uh, it both? Well, or? well, it depends how I remember them. <laughs> 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 there is also another side to this. And again, there, there are different experiences. Sometimes, again, similar kind of situation like this, and somebody's staring at you. And you think... He thinks I should recognize him, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't. So now what to do? <laughs> so you know, it depends how it works out. Either you somehow are able to avoid them, <laughs> or just brazenly, if it's unavoidable, you go up there and say, "Hi, nice to meet you again," and hope that somehow in the exchange you'll be able to sort of pick it up and guess who it is. So, in the first place, I'm saying that these things are really quite unavoidable. If you want to think of it another way, it's not really possible to hide from people if you want yeah. to hide, that yeah. is. Yeah. So it's going to happen. You're going to bump into somebody. Or, or the other thing that I find happens is people, you start to explain something uh, about where you live or where you've been, and whoever it is, you say, yes, I know. You know, like, in fact, people know where you are and what you do and so on. Uh, so these things make me think that it's probably not, not possible to disappear, even though you're a thousand miles from, from home. I wanted to use that idea in By the Sea uh, because I suppose I wanted also a kind of collision between somebody who's been living here for a while and somebody who's just arrived, and yet they also share something elsewhere. So I wanted that kind of mix. Mm. I'll, I'll meet Fateful meetings. You were you, saying when you, it can sometimes be a good thing, not about sadness, to be displaced and to, to go somewhere new. And sometimes maybe it's easier if you're not really similar, but share something similar. I think that's the fateful meeting, and this is not about sadness, because they couldn't be more different. But there's emotional residue, as we talked earlier, and that makes them come together. And I think sometimes it's easier when you take yourself out of the situation. Um, yeah, I think I'll leave it. Brian. Oh God, I don't he know. He, he finds Zimbabwean village life. He finds everything. He thought, Brazak says, you can't escape. He wants to escape. He thought, just make enough money, do this. And he can't. I yes. Um, my God, uh, I suppose uh, the, well, 
I think he he can't well go back to Zimbabwe for well for a number of reasons, but also I think uh, personal well from a very writer point of view. Uh, it was something uh, probably that uh, I well thought that well that would be quite uh, some device in a way that uh, might uh, well make this story more interesting and uh, well, keep him here for for as long as possible, and uh, so that he has to well grapple with uh, the whole well idea of uh, being a uh, I think of uh, the reality of being a. Uh, here, in in the, in the very hard way that a lot of other people find, uh, and not just uh, coming and going, and because that way, I think uh, it is a well, it becomes a very um, more challenging experience. Uh, but uh, well, so he's here, but he's hmm? not here. He's here, but he's really in Zimbabwe. There was a question there. Uh, the lady had a hand up. I think you did, yeah. Hello, um, this question is for Brian, and I was just wondering if um, you, I mean, because you're writing for an audience in the West as well, if you had to tailor your content, remove certain references, I mean, words in native language, that kind of thing. Uh, can you say that loud again? Oh, sorry. Um, I was wondering if, because you're writing for an audience that included people in the West, if you had to remove certain references or um, remove kind of, if you wanted to write maybe in your native language, take that, those kind of things out or explain. Did you, do uh. you have to explain cultural references to readers? All right. Uh, I think... Uh, well, I used to think, to feel compelled that uh, I should explain cultural references, uh, but uh, not anymore. But maybe it's just that uh, uh, I think once, when I think when you're writing, also you start uh, explaining cultural references. Uh, it makes your life a lot more difficult, uh, and. Uh, this is, I suppose, uh, it is quite, uh, it's really, I think it's quite an interesting question because uh, it's one of those things which uh, say if, uh, I think if you're another writer, not coming from outside, uh, really someone who is, uh, you know, any other European writer who's got that European heritage, who doesn't have to kind of, uh, well, is born into the history, basically, and once you're coming out, you have to find your place in here, so you kind of get forced to to explain a lot about where it is you're coming from. And uh, when you go that down that path, sometimes, well, it is it 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 does make a lot of uh, well, create a lot of problems in the sense that uh, whilst you're doing that, basically, it's so easy to um, to lose sight of of the real story. And uh, a lot of times, really, I try not to really dwell so much on that, on explaining myself where this is coming from, hoping that, well, I don't know, maybe whoever reads it will understand it somehow. And I try to make it as easy as possible, if I can. <laughs> yeah. Yep. 
of all, thanks to all of you. Um, I just wanted to pick up on a really evocative phrase, uh, Olamide, that you began with in your comments and you returned to, which is the tension between longing and belonging. And it's a wonderful, I think it really opens up place and mobility and the tension between these two. And I also thought that uh, this is a comment I'd like all of you to reflect on, because it seems to me you do different things with this tension. I mean, all three of you think of the tension between longing and belonging as unresolved. Olamita, you, you spoke of it uh, to, to talk about the specificity of women's writing um, and uh, at the interstitial space of women's writing and so on. Um, Brian, you, you, your uh, narrative of the uh, unresolved debt and, uh, and also the political and economic debt works through your narrative and it's also unresolved. It's a different kind of way of dealing with the tension, I think. And uh, Abhiraza Gurna, I think your comments uh, point to the, a different kind of a longing for uh, um, historical complexity. Uh, that is that it seems for, that, that, that we, you know, that we've always come from pasts of, that have been mobile and um, cosmopolitan and so on. So just a thought. I think we've just about got time for that one. Yeah. I didn't know how to start. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, what is the question? I mean, this sound, can you rephrase the question? Because I heard what you said, but it. Well, I'm just going to focus all the focus in different ways. Use mm -hmm. device. Yeah, I think for me it is unresolvable, but it's also interesting because um, that's the juxtaposition of life that you somehow you're in and out all the time. And actually, I didn't read that bit because I place immobilities. I was thinking that when I was thinking about my thought of the journeys, and that is, I I meant that I used to fear most satisfied when I was on the plane between Nigeria and Germany. And so, and because either way, you were always leaving something behind. You're always arriving and you're always leaving something behind. So there was always a tension and there's always a longing, but there is also multiple belongings. And um, I don't experience my, um, this journey of belonging as a loss because I see there's multiple belongings, because identities and it's very complex, history is very complex, but also we as people are very complex. So where I have to attach to instead of belonging differs. Yeah, it is not just a country. And I, I am assuming that even if I was from one place only, that still there would be other areas that I would form bonds in terms of belonging. So to me it's an interesting, and it, um, it's an interesting tension personally but also of course as a writer because of our urban you know communities this is very common now yeah, isn't it? so yeah that's my comment it's the answer of a, of a person who is multilingual too <laughs> because you're comfortable in so many languages well at least two yeah I'm very comfortable in two and then one and it, I can speak as well 
Abdurazak and Brian can say one sentence each on this, and then we have to stop. Do you want to? One sentence. Well, we have two minutes <laughs> left. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I'm saying is we don't really have much time left, but a short comment will fit in. Um, do you want to make a short comment? Uh, no, I can't do it in one comment, one sentence. <laughs> you don't have to do it in one sentence. <laughs> so I think, uh, although I've used the example of myself as a way of speaking about this complexity. I think it would be, as I see it, this complexity is all around. It doesn't have to be the property of those of us who come from you know, south of the equator or something like that. Uh, so yes, to say that there are these unresolvable, complicated, endlessly proliferating connections and meanings, and we have to make room for them. But also, I think, uh, interestingly, you know, I think it, People generally don't uh, a lot of times find it hard to belong. Even, I mean, I was talking to a friend of mine uh, a few days ago who's uh, working at an office, uh, his office job, and feels uh, they don't belong there. <laughs> <laughs> it's just another dissatisfaction that um, I suppose. On that note, it's been wonderful to belong to this panel for an hour and a half, but our time is up. Thank you all very much for coming. And thank you.